This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. In 2015, approximately 16% of female homicides remained unsolved at the time of reporting to the homicide survey compared to 29% of male homicides. The percentage of unsolved homicides has increased significantly since homicide survey data collection began in 1961. The increasing proportion of homicides that remain unsolved has been largely attributed to the increasing complexity of cases involving criminal acquaintances and gangs. On average, homicide incidents involving spouses and family members are solved more quickly than those involving perpetrators with greater social distance from the offender. On December 29, 1999, two high school best friends spent the day celebrating one of their 16th birthdays before having a sleepover that evening. Early the following morning, a passerby notified 911 that the family home was engulfed in flames, and the bodies of the two young women were nowhere to be found. This is the story of Loria Bible and Ashley Freeman. Loria Jaylene Bible was born on April 18, 1983, to parents Laureen and Jay Bible, and grew up in Welch, Oklahoma. Her best friend, Ashley Freeman, was born on December 29, 1983, to parents Danny and Kathy Freeman, and had one older brother, Shane. I found a photo which appears to show that Loria also had a brother, but I couldn't find any more information on him, which is understandable in such a high-profile case with lots of media attention. Ashley was on her high school basketball team, but had sat the 1999 season out due to an ankle injury. She worked part-time at a local convenience store called Roscoe's and was saving to purchase her first car. Loria was on the cheerleading team and was planning on going to cosmetology school after high school. Welch, Oklahoma, where the families lived, is a very small town in northeast Oklahoma, just 12 kilometers or 8 miles from the Kansas state border in the United States. This area of the U.S. I am very unfamiliar with, so I'll paint a little picture if you two don't know much about the area, like me. If you do or you're from there and you'd like to share more about the state and what that area is like, please reach out to me on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast. I also post pictures there from every case I cover. 
Oklahoma is bordered, as I said, by Kansas State to its north, Colorado to its northeast, and Missouri to its northwest. Texas is to its south, Arkansas is to its east, and New Mexico to its west. Quote, with ancient mountain ranges, prairie, mesas, and eastern forests, most of Oklahoma lies in the Great Plains, Cross Timbers, and the U.S. Interior Highlands, all regions prone to severe weather, end quote. Oklahoma is a part of the infamous Tornado Alley, which you may have heard of, and mainly refers to areas of northern Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, and South Dakota. Oklahoma also has a large First Nations population. From what I gather, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but this area was already inhabited by various indigenous nations, but during the 19th century, the U.S. government forcibly removed many more indigenous people from other areas, primarily east of the Mississippi River as European settlers took over. According to Wikipedia, by 1890, more than 30 Native American nations and tribes had been concentrated to land in the state of Oklahoma. Currently, there are 25 First Nation languages still spoken in Oklahoma. There was also a push to bring African American people to this area in the 20th century, and I suggest you look up the Tulsa Race Massacre, which completely blew my mind, and research more about the state and its history because we need to keep these conversations going as I also try to keep these stories of crimes against women in the forefront of conversation. I do realize that that was a bit of a sidebar, but my research deep dives can bring out so much more information that I sometimes get lost in it and overcome with what I find. The town of Welch has just 619 people as of 2010 which is up from 2020, so I assume in 1999 it would have been much smaller. It's located in Craigs County, and that county's administrative center is the city of Venita, which has a population of 5,743 as of 2010. Venita is roughly 27 kilometers or 17 miles from Welch. Ashley's family lived in a trailer in a remote location of town and were avid hunters and, quote, outdoor enthusiasts, meaning they also had a large collection of guns and ammunition. While the trailer did have electricity and phone service, it did not have running water and was heated by a wood-burning stove. Ashley was excited to be turning 16, as her birthday was later in the year she was the last to turn 16, and Loria had already had her birthday earlier that year and was also driving. And if you didn't know, you have to be 16 in the U.S. to get your driver's license. Everywhere is different, and there are some restrictions in place until 18 in some states, but I believe at the time you just had to be 16. She was eager to get her car and, as I mentioned, had been saving up for it. On December 29th, the day of Ashley's birthday, 
The girls first went to a pizzeria in Vanita with Ashley's mother, and they were excited to have a sleepover later and hang out. Ashley's boyfriend, Jeremy Hurst, met them at a local Walmart and gave Ashley a silver heart necklace with her birthstone in it, and the three of them hung out at the trailer with some of Ashley's family. Somewhere between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m., Jeremy went home. Now, there are conflicting reports from the family members there, with Jeremy saying 9.30 and them saying 10.30, but it doesn't really matter. All that means is that the family members were there beyond 10.30 p.m., and I'm not sure when they ultimately left. The next morning, Ashley's mother was going to take Ashley to go take her driving test, and Loria had a dentist appointment, and so the girls had planned to be up and out first thing. But around 6 a.m. the morning of December 30th, someone driving by the family's trailer saw it engulfed in flames and called 911. Sadly, the body of Ashley's mother, Kathy Freeman, was discovered in the debris, and it was discovered that she had been shot. But the bodies of Loria, Ashley, and Ashley's father, Danny, were nowhere to be found. Immediately, police suspected that Danny Freeman killed his wife and abducted the girls. But as the family's vehicles were still in the driveway, including Loria's car, they didn't have much to go on as to what they could be traveling in or any idea of where they were headed. But the following morning would prove to throw a wrench in the police theories and lead to even more questions in this troubling case. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have now started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. I will leave the link in the show notes of this episode. And as always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships every month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of November 2021 is Women's College Hospital. Located in Toronto, WCH is a leader in health for women, health equity, and health system solutions. Quote, We advocate for health equity because we know that a healthy society requires a level playing field where everyone has access to timely, high-quality, efficient, and compassionate care, end quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. The morning of December 31st, 1999, Laureen and Jay Bible decided to go to the Freeman's trailer and take a look for themselves to see if they could find any evidence of their daughter's whereabouts. 
The police had searched the area the day before and had found Kathy's remains. While searching in the bedroom, under a pile of burned debris, Jay Bible discovered something alarming. It was a body. That's right, somehow the police had missed it. But under the charred rubble was the body of none other than Danny Freeman. This discovery rocked the faith people had in the police being able to find the missing girls and shattered their theory that Danny was to blame. So, if not Danny, then who? The police had also cleared the crime scene and had not secured it the night of the 30th, meaning anyone could have come by and tampered with the scene and possibly damaged other evidence the police hadn't noticed. After finding the body of Danny Freeman, Lorene Bible told authorities, quote, You're just going to have to do it our way, end quote, and proceeded to lead her own team of volunteers to comb through the property and crime scene, adding, quote, We're not leaving here until we know that this place has been searched thoroughly this time, end quote. Both Danny and Kathy had gunshot wounds that were found to be their cause of death, and Danny also had a fractured collarbone that the coroner stated happened just prior to his fatal gunshot wound. They theorized the fire was set intentionally to hide potential evidence and placed Kathy's time of death around 5 a.m. that morning of the fire. I couldn't find anything regarding the time of death of Danny, but I assume it was approximately the same time. There was a search for the missing girls following the fire, and more theories emerged about possible suspects and motives. But with little evidence, the trail went cold. And for almost 20 years, this case went unsolved. This was the start of a mother's quest to find out what happened to her daughter. Firstly, Lorene Bible is a badass. One theory that began to take shape was the idea that local drug cartel was behind the murders. I'm not 100% sure why they thought that, but in 2005, two serial killers named Tommy Lynn Sells and Jeremy Jones confessed to the crimes, saying they murdered Kathy and Danny over a drug debt and then they then kidnapped the two girls and killed them in Kansas. But a search of the mine that they claimed to have thrown the bodies into came up empty, and they later recanted their confessions, saying they had lied in order to get better prison conditions, as they were incarcerated at the time of the confessions. But Lorraine Bible actually drove a pickup truck with people who had known connections to the drug cartel, and went as far as to confront the kingpin of the organization. In an article I found detailing a book written by Jax Miller about her fight to find out what happened to her daughter, she claims she was asked, quote, How do you know I won't kill you? The kingpin asked upon meeting her. She coolly replied, How do you know I won't kill you? Lorene then questioned the man until she was certain that the drug cartel had nothing to do with Loria and her best friend's disappearance. Miller asked Lorene if the encounter scared her. Just another day I looked for my daughter, 
the mother replied with a fixed stare, end quote. Her father, Jay, was also deeply involved in the search, too, but Lorene was fearless in her pursuit of the truth. Jax Miller stating, quote, I know she wouldn't turn her back on danger for one second. For her daughter's whereabouts, she would walk through fire, and she practically has walked through fire, and she would meet any dangerous criminal, end quote. Over the years, Lorene has worked tirelessly to keep her daughter's story from fading away into the background. And in 2018, an arrest was finally made. But before I get into that, I want to talk about another theory that was thrown around about this case and was even discussed in a 2001 Unsolved Mysteries episode. In 1998, so just one year before the fire, Ashley Freeman's brother, Shane, was shot and killed by a Craigs County police officer. Shane was in possession of a stolen vehicle, and it had broken down on the side of the road when the police officer came upon him. According to the officer, Shane reached into his back pocket and pulled out a gun, and the officer shot him. There was an investigation into the shooting, and it was cleared as a justified shooting. However, the Freeman family claimed that the autopsy report contradicted the claims of the officer and that Shane was attempting to flee the scene when he was shot. So I'm not sure if a gun was found on Shane or if he was shot in the back as he was fleeing or if in fact it was as the officer stated. But the family was apparently going to file a wrongful death lawsuit and close family members also claimed the police department had been trying to intimidate Danny Freeman into dropping it. The officers involved apparently took polygraphs and were ruled out as suspects in the case of Loria and Ashley, but it is a very timely coincidence nonetheless. Danny was also charged in 1998 with abusing Shane and was known to have a violent temper, but he was acquitted of all charges. Not that it has anything to do with the case exactly, but if someone had come by to threaten or intimidate Danny and he reacted, perhaps the situation escalated and that led to the murders occurring, be it from the police or the men they now believed committed the crimes. In 2018, three men were identified as suspects. Warren Philip Welch II, David A. Pennington, and Ronnie Dean Busick. Now, this is where you start to wonder if the police were really trying to help and find out who did this, or if maybe they did have a vendetta against the Freemans, and while they weren't necessarily involved in their murders, they didn't try enough to solve the case either. An auto insurance card was found at the scene, and it belonged to the then-girlfriend of Welch. I'll refer to them as their last names for this part. She had no relationship to the Freemans and had no idea how her card ended up there. But Welch, who along with Pennington were known meth cookers, actually lived less than a mile from the Freemans up until a few months before their deaths. They both also had violence against women charges against them, and I'm not sure if that is domestic violence charges or if they had committed sexual assaults, but nevertheless, they were known to police. 
The police refused to keep the insurance card as evidence and insisted it was not important. It was actually a private investigator that kept it, and I'm not sure if he found it or had just kept it. There's some differing articles on that. But the investigator also found out that it was registered to a blue mercury topaz and that the car had gone to salvage. But again, police didn't go to search the car and went as far as to try and have the investigator's license revoked claiming he was interfering with their investigation. It was not until 2017 that a new Craig County Sheriff found some of these files that had been, quote, misplaced, and the reference to the insurance card. And then he began digging into the case deeper. And this is when the puzzle pieces began to fit. After Loria and Ashley disappeared, Welch broke up with his girlfriend, but he kept her car and then took it to the salvage yard. In 2000, and I'm not sure if this is the end of 2000 or just a few months into the year, but Welch got himself a new girlfriend who claims to have seen Polaroid pictures of Loria and Ashley laying on a bed that she recognized as the one in their home, which means that they took the girls and kept them for who knows how long. Which is just so sad to think that if the police had followed up with the private investigator's leads, then perhaps the girls would have been found. And maybe it wasn't long that they were there. I mean, the fire was that morning, so at the very least, they would have been there a day, as they likely would have waited until night to dispose of their bodies. But given he broke up with his girlfriend... It really makes me wonder that he didn't just break up with her because he didn't want her around because he kept the girls there for longer. It's just so awful to think of how scared they must have been and how they must have been just hoping for someone to come and save them and the what if that they could have actually been saved. It's believed Loria and Ashley were held captive and tortured for up to two weeks before being murdered. The new girlfriend also claimed the men had Loria and Ashley's missing persons posters mailed to the wall of his home, and that she overheard Welch, Pennington, and Busick talking about the case at some point, and that they had, quote, implied that they had killed the family over a drug debt and took the girls, and that they had eventually killed the two girls, too. I'm not sure how all that was implied, but it's clear these men are responsible for this heinous crime, as more witnesses have admitted to being threatened by the men if they told, but that they too heard them brag about the murders, and they also saw the Polaroids. The photos were likely disposed of or destroyed, but many people saw these and were able to describe key details linking Welch to the crimes. It's also worth noting, but the money that Ashley had been saving to purchase her car was not found in the trailer. Apparently, she kept it in the freezer, and it was anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000, and it was missing, which makes sense if you think about this being a drug debt crime, that Welch and his associates came and they robbed them, then it escalated and they killed the parents and then took the girls and then started the fire. 
So it does make sense that that money would be missing. At the time of the fire, Welch and Pennington were both living in Pitcher, Oklahoma, which is about 35 kilometers or 22 miles from Welch, Oklahoma, where Loria and Ashley lived. I'm not sure if Busick was as well, but in a recent article from October 8th, 2021, so just this past month, investigators were searching an area near Pennington's then home in an area where a cellar was that his stepdaughter claims they were never allowed to go near, but nothing of significance was found as of yet. Lorraine Bible was of course there with a group of volunteers to help in the search, stating, quote, 21 and a half years. For me, my main focus is to find them. Once I find them, then I won't have to search anymore. Then you know the loss is going to be big, end quote. In April 2021, the area around the home of Warren Philip Welch in Pitcher, Oklahoma, was searched thoroughly even draining nearby ponds and clearing trees. In that article, it says he moved to Pitcher in the two weeks following the fire, but I'm not sure as another report stated that he had left Welch prior. But nonetheless, that area was searched and came up empty as well. These searches are a part of a deal with Busick, who was arrested in 2018, and eventually pled guilty in 2020 and was sentenced to 10 years in prison and five years probation. He was 66 years old at the time of the arrest, so with any luck, he will just die in prison and will never be released. He has a low IQ and claims to have memory issues due to a gunshot wound to his head in 1978 and had to undergo competency evaluations in order to stand trial. Loreen even sat down with Busick to ask him where her daughter's remains are, but he says he doesn't remember. It's widely believed that Welch was the mastermind of the crimes and that Pennington was his right hand, if you will. And that is why Busick pled guilty to accessory to murder, arson, and kidnapping. Unfortunately, Welch died in 2007 and Pennington in 2015. It scares me to think that they could have committed more crimes in their lifetimes as well, because I don't see how you murder four people and hold two of them captive and torture them for weeks and then never commit any murders or assaults afterwards. While Lorreen describes the men involved as monsters, her only focus now is to bring the girls home and have them rest in peace. It breaks my heart to think that they endured such horrible fates, and that at just 16 years old, they really had their whole lives taken from them by three disgusting and deplorable men who saw them not as people, but as objects, there for them to treat as they wish, and that they never had to see justice, that they spent their remaining years bragging about their crimes and feeling proud of the young lives they stole. I only hope one day soon, Loria and Ashley's remains will be found, and both the Bible and Freeman families can rest, knowing their girls are home and finally at peace. Thank you for listening to the story of Loria Bible and Ashley Freeman. I'm your host, Sean Marie, 
Join me next time for another story.